Hello, welcome to EVN Report. My name is Maria Titizian, and joining me from the United States is Dr. Nerses Kopalian, Associate Professor of Political Science at UNLV. Welcome to the program, Nerses. Pleasure to be here. Uh, once again, we will be talking about uh, the EVN Security Report, the briefing for July, uh, called Strategic Intelligence and National Security Strategy. Now, taking into consideration the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment, I do want to very briefly talk about the security context in the region, particularly in Artsakh. And as you noted in your security briefing, while the situation, the security environment in Armenia relatively stabilized, um, Baku has turned its full attention now onto Artsakh, onto Nagorno-Karabakh. We know that Karabakh has been in a blockade since December of 2022. We're now almost into the eighth month of that blockade. Uh, but since June 15, all humanitarian aid that was being delivered from the Russian peacekeepers or from the International Committee for the Red Cross was suspended. Uh, after they set up a checkpoint on the Hakari Bridge, the Azerbaijan Security Services, and this uh, absolute and total strangulation of Nagorno-Karabakh of Artsakh um, uh, is leading. I'm smiling because you know at the beginning of this blockade we kept talking about a catastrophe, a looming catastrophe, and now we are in the middle of that catastrophe as we're speaking. We have uh, cases of you know, an increase by 30% of miscarriages, people are dying because they can't get access to medical, um, to, to medicine or medical services. People are fainting while they're waiting for bread. There's absolutely no transportation in the Republic. Um, and it is a very, very acute and critical situation at the moment. Um, so taking, it's not, you know, it's, it's basically unfolding uh, before our eyes. And just uh, a few days ago, Luis Moreno Ocampo a founding ICC prosecutor um, gave his opinion on the situation and he did say that it has the attributes of genocide. And I think this has um, further uh, intensified the despair that uh, many Armenians are feeling uh, about the situation. And despite the international calls, Nerses, right? Many power centers around the world, uh, capitals, governments, MEPs, international organizations, the UN have all called for the unilateral unblocking of the corridor. And yet Baku continues. Uh, and it seems to have clamped down even further. So just basically, if, if you could provide um, a basic overview of why this is happening, in your opinion, and then we can move on to this uh, notion that you're talking about uh, called strategic intelligence and why Armenia needs to adopt this for its national security strategy. Indeed, indeed, Maria. Um, what you have is a situation that's not simply revolving around uh, hard security, as we traditionally understand it, but it's an issue of both human security and food security. And there are concerns that now you might have uh, displaced persons, a refugee crisis, by virtue of what Azerbaijan's ultimate objective at this point uh, is to basically create an environment that is not that is not conducive for the Armenian population to be able to live in uh, Artsakh. Therefore, they will leave on their terms, and this will create a lot of internal displaced persons in Armenia, which in of itself is another form of a security crisis as well. But what we've seen at this point is a multi-tiered approach by, uh, by Azerbaijan, by the regional configurations, 
the role Russia is playing, uh, the lack of agency that Armenia appears to have in the situation, and the international community doing its best diplomatically, but not willing to cross a certain line that we would expect them to cross to solve this uh, situation. Uh, Baku's objective has become very, very straightforward. Uh, we know that they are attempting to create a situation where they're utilizing the notion of territorial integrity to justify their behavior. Their argument is that this territory falls within our international recognized jurisdiction, therefore we could do whatever we want. Of course, that is the incoherent the argument doesn't work anywhere and no one is buying it. So in that context, Baku has lost the narrative. But losing the narrative in of itself doesn't lead to direct action. And this is the issue that we're talking about. Most of us remain frustrated in the fact that, yes, we're winning the narrative that everybody pretty much condemns Baku and demands action, but nobody's willing to basically use the stick to get this done. So there's been a lot of carrots thrown around, but where are the sticks? This is kind of what we're getting at. And when will the international community or the proverbial uh, collective West start using that stick? So this is the conversation that we're having. Now, Baku's approach has been very methodical. They allow themselves some level of culpable deniability where they say, you know, you don't have a full blockade that the International Red Cross is able to pass through, that the people there are not starving, that this is an exaggeration, so on and so forth. So they're trying to play a basically a two-tiered game. One, they try to justify the blockade as an extension of quote-unquote territorial integrity. But at the other hand, they claim there is no blockade. So there's an obvious contradiction here, and they play both sides attempting to advance an argument. It's not working. Um, what we've also seen is that Russia has been unwilling to play an important role to uh, mitigate the situation, or at least to open the launching corridor, which falls within its purview per the November 9th statement. And so in this, uh, in this context, you have the actor that has the most agency to address the problem, and they're not doing it. And when we talk to a lot of international actors, their kind of uh, argument is that, well, Russia has boots on the ground. So if they're not going to be able to solve the problem, what do you expect us to do in that context? Uh, you know, Russia, for example, is able to airlift all kinds of uh, aid uh, or uh, equipment and material to their peacekeepers. But why aren't they able to do the same for the Artsakh population? So these conversations clearly suggest that this isn't simply a humanitarian crisis, that this is also a political crisis. And there's a power play where 120,000 people are being held hostage by the Russo-Azerbaijani axis. And Armenia is basically being set up to fall between a rock and a hard place. And so, you know, the uh, concern here is that what can Yerevan do? Well, Yerevan has used every diplomatic lever capacity to engage the subject matter, minus using force, which right now it doesn't have the capacity to do. Any uh, other conversation becomes intellectually dishonest. The second, of course, issue that I want to address here is that from a political perspective, you know, what are the objectives of this? Clearly, Azerbaijan's objective is to create such a situation that either the entire Arsaf population capitulates uh, and basically engage in this quote-unquote integration, which is an absurd concept. Uh, and Russia's objective is to utilize the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh to create domestic instability in Armenia, because there's a lot of concern from Armenians uh, in the, the entire Armenian nation at that, the diaspora included, as to how is this going to proceed. So what you have is the Republic of Armenia having very little control over the process, but having to bear the burden. And Russia and Azerbaijan are playing this very, very cleverly. And at this point, the international community, while providing all kinds of verbal support, 
the diplomatic support has not been able to cross that line and basically demand Azerbaijan to open the corridor and have these demands backed up by some force, whether it's sanctions or threat of sanctions. Right. Well, a, a, a lot of things to discuss uh, this month. Uh, I, I do want to return to the Russo-Azerbaijani uh, access, um, but uh, let's... Uh, couple of things I did forget, and I think that are very important to mention. The International Court of Justice, uh, the binding decision of the ICJ for uh, Baku to lift the blockade. We have the ECHR decision. Um, this month, last month, we also saw the arrest, the abduction, let me be very clear, the abduction, and then later right. arrest of a resident, of an Armenian resident of Nagorno-Karabakh, while he was under the care of the ICRC being transported to Armenia, for medical care. We had uh, another incident when another man was uh, abducted by uh, Azerbaijani security forces after he had accidentally crossed into uh, what is now Azerbaijani territory. So these things are very important to put the whole picture sort of into, into its proper framing. Now, coming back to uh, Yerevan's abilities and the Russo-Azerbaijani axis. Now, Yerevan and many international players, let's call it that, have suggested a two-track uh, negotiation process, right? Yerevan, uh, Baku, and then Stepanagert, Baku. This is something that they've been pushing to give more agency to Stepanagert, and Prime Minister Nigor Pashinyan has said many times that the people of Artsakh have to decide for themselves what they want. Um, Russia and Azerbaijan have been obstructing this process, and, and we saw the latest round that was supposed to take place, Azerbaijan pulled back. So now in this sort of uh, context, you in, in your briefing you said that the security con uh, situation in NK in Nagorno-Karabakh and Artsakh uh, will destabilize the security environment in Armenia as well. And so, while Yerevan continues to rely on these inst international instruments, diplomacy shaping the narrative, and all of this, um, you know about the vulnerability, the now potential genocide of the Armenian people. Why, what, are the, what are the reasons why certain actors in the global community are refusing to use that stick when Yerevan has been doing everything in its power, let's say, or hope or assume to do that? Uh, I understand the difficulties for Congress and Senate to pass legislation for sanctions, but the European Union that is notoriously very slow in its bureaucratic maneuverings was able to get all of the member states on board to bring in an EU mission. What is the problem with, let's say, the United States in this case, um, moving forward? That's, a, that's an excellent question, Maria. So um, we understand that uh, the Russo-Azerbaijani access, while they're working together, have two different objectives. Azerbaijan's objective is to have victor's peace and basically basically secure whatever they want in, uh, in Artsakh and Nagorno-Karabakh on their terms, and then from that point on, impose their own terms on Armenia. So you have the two-track process where Azerbaijan tries to dominate the Armenia-Azerbaijan uh, track, while the Stepanakert-Baku track, they basically have paid lip service to it, but at the end of the day, their argument is there really is no track. I'm going to do this on my terms because it's within my quote-unquote territory. And so the obstructionism there is quite clear. Russia's participation in the obstructionism is that Russia, like Baku, doesn't want to internationalize the conflict. Thus, they want to keep it local. And so in that context, uh, if you give Stepanakert some kind of agency, and this agency is going to be under international mediation with international instruments, that internationalizes the phenomenon, and therein lies where, where the, the alignment of Baku and uh, Moscow to obstruct it. 
Now, that much has been clear. Uh, why isn't the United States basically using its power, its capacity, right, its muscle to address these issues? We have here three important problems that we have to be very, very cognizant of. One, most don't want to talk about it, but it's the elephant in the room and we need to address it. Washington does not have much trust towards Stepanak yet because they view the hidden Russian hand in there. So in that context, there's a credibility problem here. Now, I'm not saying that's true, but that is how Washington sees it. Right? Washington observes and sees Stepanakert as being somehow an extension of Russian interests, not because Stepanakert wants to do that, but Stepanakert has no other options. But at the end of the day, when you look at the, the relationship between a sort of you know, regional actors or hegemons in, in this context, the United States views development through a Russian lens. So that is the first uh, uh, assessment, the framework. Second is the humanitarian component. But sadly, the power politics always, always takes priority over the humanitarian component. So there's, those, there's that component where Stefan Akert, as much as it, it talks about the issue and as much as Yerevan pushes, uh, DC remains very suspicious of this because they do view the Russian hand dominating developments in Stepanakert. And that puts Yerevan between a rock and a hard place. So whether that's true or not, that remains the American approach. So in that context, they're not basically going to jump at this and use uh, the muscle that we need because they're not fully convinced that this is in the interest of Stepanakert. They still view that Russian interests are being uh, advanced through this process. Now, that being said, until you have, and I'm, I'm sorry to say this, this is very traumatic for us, but until you see people, for example, dying of starvation in Stepanakert or Azerbaijan marching in and start killing civilians, U.S. is not going to use the stick that we talk about. That's very, very clear. Okay, So unless you have blatant ethnic cleansing, U.S. is still hoping that through negotiations, through diplomatic pressure, somehow this issue could be resolved. Of course, our point is that after eight months, we realized that not only is this not going to be resolved, that Bach was them to normalize it. And normalization is very, very problematic because once you normalize it and you make it uh, a subject of negotiations, then basically, if the negotiations fail, Baku can fall back to its position and say, well, this is the situation. We've normalized it. What do you want us to do? And so this is intrinsically concerning. And the third aspect is that both the European Union and the United States uh, and the United States understand that as problematic as Baku's behavior is, both have important strategic interests as far as Baku is concerned. So their own strategic interests are not going to be basically subjugated to interests of the Armenians. So minus blatant ethnic cleansing, which is supposed to be a red line, none of these uh, actors are going to uh, cross that barrier and allow their interests to be harmed for the Armenian population or for Armenian interests. This is the reality of the matter. But again, the issue isn't black and white. Just because you're not willing to cross that line doesn't mean that they are not aware of what's going on, that they are not willing to use extensive diplomatic pressure. And this also doesn't mean that down the line, this isn't going to harm Baku. We have to understand that uh, Azerbaijan sp spent 25 years of caviar diplomacy shaping a narrative. And they've been reaping the benefits of that because they were able to get international sympathy. Now we're chipping away of that. And so five years from now, 10 years from now, down the line, where the international narrative is Azerbaijan starving an ethnic population or Azerbaijan doing X, Y, and Z, those are going to produce different developments. And so there's a sort of a multi-layered long-term perspective here that we have to uh, understand. Um, but, you know, as far as the other one is concerned, indeed, they are attempting to do everything they can. 
uh, the recent convoy that we saw that was sent to uh, to the Larchin corridor, to the border, right? That was another attempt to at least wake up the international community or get something done. But uh, as we said, minus the use of force, which in reality is what Azerbaijan wants, that's the trap that they're trying to set up for us, minus falling into that trap and making things worse, the problem at, the, at hand seems to be very, very concerning. And our options, again, have to rely on not only putting extensive pressure on the international community, but also shaping a narrative that this is no longer about Armenia and Azerbaijan. This is about Azerbaijan attempting to ethnically cleanse and commit some form of genocide against the Armenian population. This is why the Akampo uh, report that came out yesterday remains so crucial in this narrative, in this argument. Yeah, uh, you know, we've been told uh, over and over again by people in Brussels and Washington that this Azerbaijani narrative is so entrenched uh, within the corridors of their own uh, institutions. And uh, while Azerbaijan was engaging in this kind of caviar diplomacy, um, people in Azerbaijan were not being starved. So at this point, we, time is uh, absolutely of the essence. And while we are seeing um, this news gets some traction, at least in the international media and, you know, with these international calls, I fear that without actual intervention, we will be seeing people uh, dying of malnourishment, of starvation. And we are, you know, our, <clears throat> excuse me, our self-ministry of health released some statistics that are very, very alarming. People dying of stroke, heart attacks, um, and other kinds of circulatory system diseases because of a lack of medicine and medical attention. Um, we could go on about this, uh, obviously, but I do want to talk about uh, this concept that you um, uh, wrote about in the July briefing called strategic intelligence, which is qualified as the intelligence needed to create and implement strategy. So for your national security strategy, how is this different from ordinary intelligence? But ordinary intelligence tends to be very, very broad. You have what's known as classical intelligence theory, which is uh, uh, revolves around the utilization of academic scholarship and sort of the work of practitioners in the intelligence community to develop uh, uh, information intelligence through various different mechanisms and to utilize that to serve these certain uh, security interests uh, of a country. Strategic intelligence is one component of that, but this is what intelligence is utilized to develop policy, to develop contingency plans and to shape national natural national security strategy so the, we could review uh, uh, in a more simple term uh, or in a simple conceptualization of uh, strategic intelligence as being basically a surgical weapon that is used to enhance or develop a more robust and uh, more operationalizable uh, national security policy so intelligence is broad strategic intelligence is utilized more acutely to develop policies that are reliant on those specific modalities of intelligence. So for example, uh, if we talk about military intelligence, that's very different, for example, the, the, the level of intelligence and the type of intelligence is very different than, for example, intelligence that comes to protecting the infrastructure of the country or the, the cybersecurity components or, or, or food security components or energy sector components, right? So each policy, each sector of security needs its own specific and strategic intelligence to be able to develop policies and contingency plans to address it. Similarly, when it comes to issues of foreign policy, for example, or developing defensive or military capabilities against an enemy, each one has its own unique uh, structure and nature of intelligence that is necessary to develop those strategies and policies. 
So strategic intelligence is understood through that lens. It's basically intelligence that could be surgically operationalized to enhance policy and then make it basically enforceable or implement, could be implemented in, in time of necessity. Let me ask uh, a provocative question. Did Armenia's security apparatus, did, did we even have proper intelligence, never mind strategic because that's okay. yeah that's that's uh you know uh in the in the brief i talk about that you know because of the uh soviet security culture and what we inherited from that discussing intelligence is somehow a taboo right so we've never had an honest discussion about our capabilities <clears throat> because everybody assumes that state secret and don't talk about it well the concrete intelligence is a state secret but the concept the process the structuration is not this is part of scholarship it's part of research it's part of institution building. So in that context, uh, because in the Soviet tradition, both were fused together, it's become a taboo of conversation. And the point that we're making, that I'm making, that those who study strategic intelligence make is that, no, you cannot have a comprehensive or coherent national security strategy if these issues aren't engaged by the uh, think tank community, the, intel the, the, the upper intelligentsia, for example, um, the academic community, and of course, practitioners. So this is kind of the discourse that we're having. Now, because we haven't had this discourse in Armenia, the question that you pose, right, is something that interests everybody. Did we have intelligence? What does our, do our intelligence capabilities look like? Uh, have they been functional at all? And, you know, uh, contextual, and I, I discussed in the report, we have not had a very coherent or well-developed uh, intelligence structures in Armenia. And that's by virtue of two important factors. One, we've always relied on Russia for security deterrence and some level of intelligence. And two, you need to have some kind of indigenous capabilities or a school of espionage to produce that. We haven't. Whatever we have has been some level of training in Russia. So in this context, this dependency structure has delimited and denied our capacity to develop intelligence capabilities. And this has been more than evident that we've seen, you know, in the last 10 years, where we have had almost zero knowledge of what Azerbaijan is doing, what their operations are, what their capabilities have. We've been able to presume things, but we've never had concrete intelligence. Now, on top of that, we've had no strategic intelligence. So in Armenia, policy and strategy has been based on the information that we have in front of us, which is very limited. And then to a large extent, attempting to be projective or assumptive, uh, presumptive of what Azerbaijan might do. That is not an efficient way of developing strategy or policy. This is why we've always been one or two steps behind and always trying to play catch up by virtue of the fact that one, we haven't had sufficient intelligence capabilities, and two, we've never used strategic intelligence to enhance our capabilities. You talk about um, a couple of things that, uh, just things that I've pulled out from your briefing that in Armenia security apparatus, intelligence was viewed as tactical and tangential as opposed to being strategic or surgical. Uh, so the tactical was con conflated with the strategic, right? Absolutely. And, and so, so yeah. go, go ahead. Oh, I have lots of notes. So, <laughs> oh, no, yeah, the point I was basically making is so intelligence, for example, has been used at the tactical level. For example, uh, let's say military intelligence gets some information on Azerbaijani arms movements, right, or repositioning of artillery or whatever. That intelligence is basically used at the tactical level where our uh, uh, 
of frontline soldiers are made aware of it and they can adjust accordingly. That's it. So that hasn't been systematized, for example, where over a two or three year period, we observe these movements, we patternize them, we quantify them, and then we develop projected modeling to shape policies. So we have a healthy understanding of what Azerbaijan is doing. So all of those, for example, pieces of information of troop movement, artillery movement, so on and so forth, right? All of that is intelligence. That intelligence has not been used strategically to help develop policies. Those have mostly been used at the tactical level to address an immediate issue, and then they're basically forgotten about or not incorporated into the process because you don't have a process where strategic intelligence can be used to develop concrete strategy. This right. is kind of the point that we're getting at. Right, so you, you, you're, what you're saying is you take it from an abstract theory, let's say, and, and make it more concrete, more operational, right? So. I'm just trying to understand, what's the difference, uh, how is strategic intelligence different from operational intelligence or tactical intelligence, or is strategic intelligence sort of the overarching um, right. modus, mode of operations here? Right, so, so tactical intelligence or operational intelligence uh, can make up different components of strategic intelligence. Intelligence becomes strategic when it's used to develop policy or strategy. Okay, so that's much broader, right? Typically, you can look at top, bottom, or bottom-up. So top-bottom would be from the abstract level to the operationalization level. And then the bottom-up would be from the tactical and operational level to the strategy or policy level. So we, in Armenia, we've always basically been stuck at the bottom level, right? We've had some tactical operational uh, intelligence, but it's been used at the bottom level. It's never made its way to the strategy level or the doctrinal level or the broader security strategy level. And so it hasn't been used strategically to develop policies. This is the <clears throat> point that's been made. Also, because you don't have this uh, uh, systemic way of thinking, the body of intelligence that is gathered at the, at the uh, uh, ground level in the, in, the, in the front lines or whatever the case might be, uh, that has not been correctly systematized to affect thing, security policy making. And so this is the difference between having intelligence and quickly using it at the tactical operational level, while uh, the, the, the other part is using all that intelligence to eventually develop robust policies. Okay, so let's talk uh, about Armenia. When I say Armenia, I'm also including Artsakh here, but Baku, aside from having hard power asymmetry, uh, they, there was also big disparities in intelligence capacity. So this created problems uh, in instances of concentrated surprises. And we saw this, right, in 2016 with the four-day war, obviously in 2020. Uh, during the 44-day war, perhaps I can even argue in the September 2022 incursion into Armenia proper. Can you Absolutely. Can you elaborate on this? Because you also talk about the fact that we didn't have human intelligence as well. Right. Listen, it's no surprise that Armenia's never really had a robust, uh, what we call human, human intelligence capabilities. We don't have spies in Azerbaijan. Uh, we don't have spies behind enemy lines. Okay. You know, once in a while, uh, prior to 2020, there were instances where we were able to have some level of minor infiltration. Our reconnaissance quality capabilities had been almost nothing until 
recently and the heavy reliance on Russia to provide whatever information they gave us was obviously insufficient to address the problems that we had. Our, our access to a satellite imagery remains very, very limited. Uh, so, you know, the, all of these sort of uh, modalities uh, of intelligence gathering that is very common in relatively uh, uh, developed uh, or even developing strong military states or, or states that have strong security, or, I mean, had lacked. Now, it is in the process of building those, but we're at a severe disadvantage. Azerbaijan, on the other hand, right, has had access to human intelligence by virtue of its relationship with Turkey. Turkey has extensive intelligence in Armenia. They shared with Azerbaijan. Uh, they've had access to Israeli, uh, for example, satellite imagery, Turkish satellite imagery, so on and so forth. So clearly, there was expansive access to intelligence that Azerbaijan had that Armenia never had. So that in of itself suggested a asymmetry, not only in hard power, but asymmetry in intelligence and strategic intelligence. And Azerbaijan did use all that intelligence to develop its strategy, right? If we, for example, <clears throat> and, there's, and some of us have been working with, I mean, uh, you know, this hasn't been really discussed much, but, uh, you know, if you quantify, for example, the vets that we had in the 44-day in the war, we have extraordinarily high death rates in the first three days. Azerbaijan knew very accurately where uh, the concentration of Armenian troops were, what were they supposed to be targeted, and a targeting of these troops was going to lead to a demoralization because if you have five, six hundred casualties in the first few days, the capacity of, uh, of the opponent, opposing army having fighting morale is going to be diminished. That is a very simple example of them having strategic intelligence of our troop placements utilizing that to target them, but that being part of a broader policy of demoralizing our fighting capabilities. So they were able to engage in a lot of those kinds of basically uh, strategy development that wasn't simply tactical. It was part of a broader uh, strategy that they had developed. Our capacity for that was obviously, uh, and you know, no evidence that we were able to engage in that kind of behavior. So when Azerbaijan was able to engage what was known as a concentrated surprise, where they accumulated force, but then used that force in a fashion where we were not expecting it as far as the scope and magnitude of it is concerned, right? <clears throat> we were fundamentally cut off guard, but they were able to engage in a concentrated surprise because they had some level of strategic intelligence. So these are all examples that we're engaging in. We've been talking about, for example, quite a bit about what lessons did Armenia learn from the 40 war in 2016. Well, if you don't have a comprehensive uh, security infrastructure and you don't know how to use strategic intelligence, you really cannot systematize what you've learned. But so we whereas we knew, for example... Security. Sorry to interrupt, but yes. we've always had national security policies or uh, working papers and white papers. Did those strategies not take into account any of these? Of course not. Of course not. Armenian strategies until... Uh, post-2020 were either copy and paste strategies from Russia, or if you read, read them, they are basically sort of these uh, long comprehensive discussions of abstract concepts, but there are no strategic uh, assessments. For example, you know, you're when, when you talk about deterrence theory, there is no concrete uh, research-driven uh, uh, deterrence theory. It was basically Russia, our most important strategic partner, okay, or the importance of the diaspora. So these very broad uh, uh, conceptualizations with no concrete uh, strategic thinking. And so all of that basically produced a situation where you really don't have a comprehensive or a coherent security policy. And that a lot of times is a byproduct of not knowing how to develop strategic intelligence and not knowing how to utilize it. And so this is the issues that we've had. 
And I, and I always bring up, uh, you know, when we have these discussions, right, uh, we had extensive failures in the, in the, the 44-day war. That's an open, that's a secret. It's not even open. It's not a secret. It's, not, it's, it's a basically open, subject of open conversation, right? But when we look at, at uh, uh, the, the 40 war in 2016, and we're purely depoliticizing this, this is basically through a lens of security studies and military science, sure. right? Uh, we knew, for example, that Azerbaijan in the 40 war had tilted to the utilization of drones as a mechanism of aerial dominance, right? So our approach was every time Azerbaijan would use drones, right, to warn, for example, the, the, the local platoons of this and hope that those could be shot down. <clears throat> so intelligence was used purely at the tactical level. Mm. We did not develop a comprehensive security strategy of how is Armenia going to address Azerbaijan's drone superiority. So in 2016, we knew they had superiority, but we were not able to incorporate this into our deterrence or defense strategy. It's a very simple example that we have intelligence some, we have some information, but it's utilization integration into a coherent and operationalizable security strategy has never been done. And this is because we've never known how to use strategic intelligence to develop strategy and policy. You know, Nersas, thank you uh, for explaining strategic intelligence for uh, for for our audience and, and for us. Um, I would really encourage our readers. Uh, we have a whole section called EVS Security Report. We've been doing this since September 2022. At the time, we hoped we wouldn't have to keep doing it for a very long time, but it seems that we will continue uh, with these uh, briefings. Uh, so uh, I would encourage you to go and uh, read and, and become familiar with many of the concepts that are being introduced. Um, I wanna thank you for taking the time to talk to us, Nersis, as always, and we look forward to the next briefing. And uh, I don't know when, where we'll be in a month from now, but hopefully with some better news, so. Thank you, Maria. Thank you.